welcome to the Community Development Podcast. A podcast dedicated to community development practice and approaches, sharing our learning and connecting the workforce. My name is Russell. Welcome to Johnny Curry from Belfast. How are you, Johnny? I'm very well, thank you. Yep, thanks for having me on. No, welcome, welcome to the podcast. We went transatlantic a few episodes ago with Moses from the United States. We were looking at historically black colleges and universities in America and how they're very much anchored in, in communities that, that serve and represent Afro-American black communities in the United States. It's not transatlantic, but it's across the water, across the Irish Sea to, to yourselves. You're based in East Belfast. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about yourself and your work and your background? Sure. So, uh, Johnny Curry is my name. I work in East Belfast for a community development agency called East Belfast Community Development Agency. Um, we are an umbrella body for the community sector in our part of time. I've been with the organisation for 10 years. Prior to that, I worked in community development in the faith-based sector and also on policy development for the Northern Ireland Council for Voluntary Action, NICFA, and uh, prior to that I worked in Newton Arts as well. So I've been around the community development sector for around probably about 20 years. Yeah, I haven't really worked anywhere else. <laughs> uh, always been Belfast, Ards, Northern Ireland really. Yeah, so. Did you fall into it or was it part of your grand plan in life? No, it wasn't. I studied law law with politics at Queen's and um, during my politics dissertation I was volunteering in a youth drop-in centre down in Newtonards, a town where I was born. So my dissertation was on the influence of evangelical religion on loyalist ethnic identity. Okay. So it brought me into contact with folks in the political and the community side in East Belfast and so I got to know people in that part of the world started to volunteer in East Belfast as well, gradually took an interest in community development and community politics and just kind of moved into that sector from uh, law, which um, I've been glad about ever since. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always interested how people find themselves in this sort of work because I, I, I fell into it really and that does tend to be the, the experience uh, of a lot of people I've, ever, I've always encountered but also there's been that actually I was involved <laughs> volunteering I was an activist on maybe a particular cause or whatever that might be there's always very similar connections that's why I like to I like to sort of probe guests and, and, and other people I encounter as to how they got into this so you mentioned the word loyalist there I've said to you off, off air that I don't want this to be a rubberneck into the troubles and, and, and sectarianism in Northern Ireland but clearly I don't suppose you can do your work getting away from that or, or trying to create some sort of vacuum where that isn't relevant or isn't pertinent to what you're doing yeah, so our work now is in mostly Protestant Unionist loyalist areas. Uh, our work reflects the realities of the community and the people and the interests that you're in. So our work involves engaging with people from that constituency. And you find yourself in community development work engaging in all sorts of grey areas. And uh, in our part of the world, it's no different. Like, So yeah, it can be politically sensitive at times, but just sort of reflects the conflicted lack of black and white very diverse, very varied, challenging nature of community development work. I remember early on in my career working in Merthyr Tidville, so you know, a very proud sort of town, the top of the, the South Wales Valleys, top of the, the South Wales coalfield, and probably the largest 
town in the coalfield and somebody talking about some sort of I think it was a sort of like an intermediate labour market type initiative around environmental skills and countryside skills that they were working on and talking about I think I'd only been there about two weeks and they were talking about how you know they were sick of people from Cardiff coming up and taking the jobs and, and me sort of thinking slumping down into my seat thinking is this is this me they're talking about you know and, and I guess that happens a lot and, I, and a lot of the literature you sent through to me to, to, to read through for by way of preparation for this I felt a lot of it, and again, I might be jumping on this, I don't know, and it, 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 it's not, 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 not fair that I do, but there was a lot that talked about trust. Now, we talk about trust a lot, trying to gain trust of local people on an estate or, or whatever that might be, but also it, it seemed to be a little bit more amplified in the literature that I was reading about the locality that you're doing your work in. Oh, well, probably like any tight-knit urban post-industrial community. And loyalist communities are no different. Mm. They're they're incredibly tightly knit. There are there's codes and honours and practices that just often get a bad press, but it's the glue that it's the glue and the infrastructure that holds those communities together. Mm. And it can be hard for all sorts of agencies to actually find a way into those communities and for them to build trust, but also hard for loyalist communities or any communities like that that are tightly knit and that have been and that have perhaps felt a little bit on the defensive and very self-protective of their identity for them to build trust with other agencies because it's sometimes seen as a slight sign of weakness as well. Okay. If you've always been self-sufficient and proud and always known what you're about, um, you have to suddenly have to go and build relationships with statutory agencies, whether that's the council or the police or the housing executive. Um, it can take a bit of work. Mm. In order to that, so a lot of our community development work in Northern Ireland is around building relationships. And I suppose I'm speaking mainly from sort of Protestant Unionist loyalist areas where I've been mostly working in. There's a lot of trust and brand new relationships that have to be that have to be built for the first time. Whether it's with the health authorities, whether it's with councils, police, because there maybe hasn't needed to be as much work done in the past. And just as Northern Ireland has changed, and as communities on the Catholic Nationalist Republican side um, have fought and have probably, probably, probably been more effective in in building relationships with those agencies because some of the needs have been greater. Uh, community development in Protestant Unionist loyalist areas has probably had to do a bit of catch up. So loads of trust building that has been done and still has to be done. Yeah. That's interesting. And so to what extent, I mean, I invite you to explain some of the issues politically at, at devolved Northern Irish government level, because there's no assembly sort of currently meeting at the moment, and, and not for a while, I understand. But to what extent does the, does the you refer to a housing executive, for instance, what are the, and, the, and the police, what are the sort of levers and apparatuses of, of the state recognise that they need a community development approach, therefore, to begin to build up that trust? It's been interesting... Um from the departmental point of view that of all the government departments and all the different areas of government that are currently there probably the department that is is the most well seemingly bought into a community development approach is the department of health okay and i don't know if that's because health is not as politically contentious from an orange from an orange and green point of view and also because it's the it's a side of things here that has reformed most over the last 10 years in terms of the number of health trusts has reduced um, and a lot of the admin has been broken down and reduced 
um, in order to save money that they've seen the benefits of a community development approach to influence services at an earlier level. Um, so on the health side of things, there definitely has been more of an understanding of the importance of community development principles. Um, it's interesting when you come and look at local authority level now here. Um, we now have community planning mm. in place in some shape or form, finally, but we find that that is really varied from council area to council area. So, for example, in Belfast, which is obviously the biggest council area, its community planning agenda has seemed to be, from our perspective, very much focused on the city centre, driving growth in the city centre, oh, yeah. attracting investors, residents, tourists into there. But the outlying areas of deprivation like Inner East, Inner West have suffered really, so they don't seem to value community development. And that is probably reflected in the fact that there hasn't been a community development strategy from the council since 2015 as well. So it is a bit of a varied picture, whereas some of the local councils that are a bit smaller, that uh, haven't got the clout of the Belfast Council, and also where the community infrastructure isn't quite as well developed as it is in Belfast, seem to have a slightly better relationship with community groups because they realise that it's more fractured and there are fewer of them, so it's easier to have those conversations about influenced okay. services. In Wales, we hear very little about community planning these days. So when the large flagship, once described by Welsh Government, regeneration programme, community development programme, tackling poverty programme, it was all of those things maybe none of those things when that started in the early 2000s it was very much against the backdrop of a community planning framework and the local authority that i worked in at that time kafili just north of cardiff into the into the into the valleys was very much of the view that a program like communities first that is around trying to develop forms maybe of participative democracy trying to encourage people to have a a, a role in decision making um, really trying to sort of stimulate that kind of grassroots community group fabric that actually that shouldn't just be confined to the so-called areas of, of, of greatest deprivation as typified by statistics. But actually, if that's a good thing to do in an area of disadvantage, it's also a good thing to do in an area next door that you know quite isn't quite as disadvantaged but still has some socioeconomic issues because we're in that we're in the South Wales coalfield. So. They very much tried to apply that across the piece, and that was almost unique. So that that inconsistency and that patchiness from local authority area to area, I can absolutely understand and, and, and recognise. But what's interesting is I'm talking about is 2003 to 2008-9, community planning is, is, well, I think this is the first time I've used the term community planning in quite a while <laughs> here in Wales. I mean, it's just not it's not really on the scene, which is interesting. And yeah. very much you seem to have, you seem to be looking towards Scotland in some of the literature I read um, a lot of reference to the policy arena but not just the arena also the, the players the actors who's involved very much seemed to be something that people in Northern Ireland were looking to. Some of that was largely due to the newness of the Northern Ireland Assembly here as a devolved institution so when it got set up back in 2007 and was up and running again it was functional in terms of looking for new ideas fresh thinking that we tended to look to Scotland as as a model of good practice, uh, just in terms of some of the similarities between Northern Ireland and Scotland in terms of even some of the demographics, some of the health challenges. Yeah. And uh, and also looked at community planning probably from the assembly as a as a way of saving money as well and efficiencies. So yeah, we have tended to look at Scotland. Uh, but really the community planning agenda in Northern Ireland since since the since the councils were restructured five or six years ago there there hasn't really been much else mm. has been done now uh, prior 
to the assembly collapsing, it was on the agenda for all of the central government regeneration powers. So the likes of the neighborhood renewal strategy, which was a sort of flagship program for addressing deprivation, the plan was for all of that to be devolved to local councils. That didn't happen. I think it's been a blessing in disguise, mainly for the, the reason that there is such a disparity across councils in terms of what community development means, how they engage with the sector. So there would have needed to be some sort of policy direction that would have came from central government to say, look, here's how you should do it. There wasn't really much evidence of that. So some groups just probably wouldn't have been funded because council just would have absorbed that money and spent it themselves on, I don't know, putting toilet rolls in the community centres. Yeah, which I'm not unfamiliar with either. So that programme, uh, that neighbourhood renewal programme, has sort of, well, I was going to use the word limp, that might be unfair, but it's it's kind of just kind of carried on, but with not a huge degree of sort of strategy, it seems to, to my mind. Yeah, so the strategy was called People in Place, and it started in 2003 and it lapsed in 2015 so it was to it already was two years out of date while the assembly was still functioning and i mean it was a fairly ambitious strategy you know it had, had identified 36 neighborhoods um which were the most the the, the uh, most deprived 10 of the wards across northern ireland and it did set out to be genuinely cross cross cutting i mean it was situated within uh, the Department for Social Development as it was back then. And it did uh, name all of, the, all, of, all of the other government departments in terms of their commitments and things that they would do. But 13, 14, 15 years on, we're a completely different sector now. Uh, we're more ethnically diverse as a country. Mm. We've had austerity, we've had food banks, food poverty, all those different things now, which mean that the sector looks very different mm. and the needs are very different. But uh, since... 2015 has just been rolled over every year with no change and with cuts imposed each time as well. And the thing about the groups that the Neighbourhood Renewal Strategy funds is they're, they're all based in neighbourhoods and have been since the 70s, 80s and 90s. So they funded organisations that have been largely active through the conflict here and that know their neighbourhoods very well and can be very responsive and know things inside out. On the downside, and I suppose it's speaking critically about ourselves as the sector, they're often not the most dynamic organisations in terms of getting their word out, in terms of being very uh, creative. Um, The jobs aren't well paid. It's quite an ageing workforce because it's not a very attractive sector to work in. Uh, But it is very much the safety net sector. So those groups that are funded under neighbourhood renewal are at the cold face. So when there's local crises, local emergencies, whether it's suicides, flooding, extreme weather, those groups are there. They just haven't got the nice and the ability and the money to promote themselves or to be very flashy, you know. So it's a strategy that needs change and needs renewed because those groups, I think, are very, aren't very good at managing change and aren't very good at succession planning because they're firefighting the kind of yeah. constant need that the groups have. So that strategy needs to be totally reevaluated, but it isn't really going to happen anytime soon by the looks of it. But something you said then resonates with something I'm writing at the moment is we have this phrase, uh, you know, resilient communities. And I did think, I, I did see it once or twice in some of the literature you sent through. Refreshingly, not as much as I'm seeing it over here in Wales. The picture you just painted there suggests to me, actually, okay, maybe not the most dynamic, maybe the, not the most innovative, but in that degree of responsiveness, that ability to really understand what's going on, that strikes me as actually quite a resilient area and quite a resilient sort of, well, community at the end of the day. 
Yeah, and um, those groups and those communities have have had to be yeah. incredibly resilient yeah. because all of the, the stuff that have come through, mm. through the conflict, through the subsequent peace process as well, but they're almost again at the bottom of the pecking order in terms of in terms of our sort of wider voluntary and community sector in, in Northern Ireland as a whole, which is there are some groups that are doing really well. I suppose I'm talking more about the larger kind of voluntary organisations yeah. that are able to win contracts, yeah, yeah. tenders, bids, have a policy department, have a PR department, are very corporate and are doing really well. And you down at the bottom, you have these kind of groups that are actually working day and daily in the most challenged neighbourhoods with all the range of complex needs that are there. And they're the groups that probably have been most resilient and have been most efficient with the least amount of money. Yeah. And I'm not sure how much longer some of those groups can actually carry on if there's not a brand new strategy that recognises and affirms what they do and helps them to think about how they actually sustain themselves. And the blog link you sent through, forget the date that that was out. I tweeted a link to it and I can do so again. It articulates this and it does it really, really well, I think. And I can recognise something here in my practice and experience where the infrastructure bodies are, yeah, go on, I'm going to say it, they're looking after themselves first. And I can understand that because they have a workforce, they have a payroll that they want to retain. They've been around for a while and they want to continue. And it's not to say that they don't do good work. But like you said, below that, that very organic grassroots level is, I don't know, I wonder whether it's being starved. And it's not just about cash. It's about expertise. It's about access to learning. It's about the people coming in like you, like me in the past, who come in and, and, and just challenge and be a critical friend and encourage them to be a little bit more like you said dynamic a bit more innovative maybe remind people of an equalities agenda or whatever that might be that's needed that bit seems to be getting overlooked i see that here in wales i hear about it in other areas as well and it's interesting that you seem to be echoing that to a, to a certain degree in, in northern ireland yeah our infrastructure organizations here i think to be fair to them have a lot of interests to balance so they have the large, very powerful, thematic voluntary organisations that have a lot of influence, have a lot of power, are influential, and they have to balance all those interests and just keep that loose, baggy monster that is the voluntary community sector and the social economy sector and the arts sector. I mean, there are so many interests there to manage, but I mean, obviously I'm biased towards those groups at the bottom of the ladder uh, because they are dealing with the groups that, that are the most challenged. It's a tough nut to crack in that the challenges that, that we face, that you face in your work, are it's long-term, slow work, isn't very popular, often suffers from a lot of negative perceptions as well because of the history of Northern Ireland as well, mm-hmm. uh, which adds an extra layer of, of complexity, I think, to our work here. So all those things are all, all do make it very challenging. But also the interesting thing as well is in terms of surveying the sector, our main infrastructure group here, which is NICFA, have a survey called State of the Sector, which is produced every three or four years to really ask, you know, kind of what are the main themes in the sector? How is fundraising? How are people influencing things? What are the main things that people are doing? And always one of the key questions is what is your core area of work? So it lists, you know, uh, youth work, community development work, older people, welfare. Community development is always the one that comes to the top. You know, 75% of groups say that community development is their main thing, and that's large groups, whether it's Bernardo's, Oxfam, down to the neighbourhood groups. 
those two words, community development, come through at the top. Mm. And I always think that's really fascinating because how, how many of them are actually doing community development? This is the thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah the term can be appropriated. And it's not to say that they're not doing good things, but is it community development yeah. that they're actually doing? And I think, it's, I, think, I think it's healthy of the discipline then. And I think it is incumbent on us, you know, as part of this sector. And again, I, I always bristle when I, when I use the word community development sector because it, it suggests it's, it's this easily identifiable and, and, and homogenous thing. And it clearly isn't. But I think it is incumbent on us to healthily, politely critique the use of the terms by by other organizations particularly those who you know it might be given austerity it might be that we are for want of a better word in competition with for for resource and i'm and i want to say resource i don't mean just funding it's it's other forms it's that political support it's patronage it's it's access to digital technologies it's around you know getting some favors done you know all that kind of thing that resource in the broadest sense we you know it is very competitive out there at the minute it is. I mean, something. I mean, I'm always conscious whenever I'm speaking to colleagues in England and Wales. Uh, we have been largely shielded from the massive public funding cuts that you've had to suffer across the water. You know, uh, a lot of that's largely due to our uh, clinical training off that we're very good at doing. <laughs> uh, so, you know, like our organisations, so the neighbourhood renewal group, that sort of range of organisations that are funded, even though it's been cut, you know, during the lifespan of the strategy, it has largely been protected from a huge cuts across the water so organizations are still there are still surviving and are protected i suppose the downside of that is you know i think that neighborhood renewal or other programs like the community investment fund are pretty much closed closed programs so there's no brand new opportunities for new groups to come in and influence those and ask for funding and ask for support so that's a big uh, problem in terms of public sector funding to the sector here it could be levelled that it's a lot of clientelism actually, rather than uh, rather than objective need, and that's and that's quite political in in nature too. But the upside of it is, it does mean that a lot of work still gets funded, yeah. but uh, it's a bit it's a bit closed off. You know, it isn't really good uh, from the outside looking in. And I think it, I think what's interesting as well, and you know, people like Martin Hoban have, have written quite scathingly about this. I saw it with a community organisation in. Cardiff on Monday with whom I spent the afternoon they're talking about how and I'm not for one second saying it is and has been easy but they're talking about how that big state-sponsored program and okay Community First wasn't a per se community development program but it was the crucible in which a lot of community development activity was taking place since that ended they haven't reduced their staffing quota they're actually involved in more things. They feel they are more responsive to the community. They've actually got, almost in one respect, weaker links, but better for it with the local authority. And what was interesting yeah. was they, there wasn't this fatalism, which I did encounter a few times while the programme was still running and but was, was coming to an end. Um, they're actually looking at this as an opportunity. They're freed up from that political process, that, that year-to-year sort of budget gymnastics you use that phrase in your blog and it was a little bit about that trying to manage cuts to the to the program budget and the funding that was available and actually now they're just much more responsive much more footloose actually without all of that program kind of apparatus and infrastructure you used the word dynamic earlier they feel more dynamic now without all of that than they were maybe two to three years ago when that program was there yet at the time that feels safe and this this moment that they're in now would have felt quite unsafe and quite insecure and ins- uncertain actually has been quite liberating which i think is fascinating 
Certainly we do have to deal with a lot of the drawbacks of being comparatively financially secure compared to other parts of the UK in that our kind of definition of community development in terms of the values and the national occupational standards that we try to work to is incredibly watered down by our funders, particularly just helping groups with funding applications, supporting groups with their governance, helping people to fill in forms, encouraging people to get to know their MLAs. That challenge function isn't really emphasised very much and it's something that we tend to not include in our monitoring forms. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just, but we just get on with it anyway. Yeah, yeah. So we're aware of that tension and I suppose where the gap is here is the need for some collective voice. Perhaps it is an organisation that actually safeguards and protects those community development values, talks about them, makes them known, flags them up, because there's certainly no one doing that at the moment. Mm-hmm. Probably suits government, the kind of current community development funding policies, because it keeps groups probably relatively compliant and a wee bit quieter. But yeah, that needs to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think compliant is, is anything we should ever aim to be. I touched on it earlier. You've explained it to me off air in a little bit more detail. But what, what's, so what's going on at, at Stormont? So Stormont would be where your Northern Ireland Assembly is, is sort of located. What, what's going on with that? <sighs> Not much. Not much. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been without a functioning Assembly and Executive since March 2017. It is, I think, starting to have a very negative impact on the community involuntary sector in that uh, while the assembly was functioning and you had MLAs and you had party policy officers who you could engage with, it did actually a lot of impetus and was a bit of a catalyst for some really positive policy ideas which uh, the assembly probably wasn't really long enough going for, for a lot of those ideas to bear fruition but certainly having the assembly there created an energy in terms of engaging with the sector and ideas and just brand new ways of doing things and that just f- feels all very stagnant now so all those MLAs that we currently have in, have in post still even though they have been given a pay cut by the Secretary of State it's hard to really work out what they're actually doing I have to say to be fair and I uh, we have good relationships with all of the MLAs in East Belfast and they've been very helpful to us very supportive on, on a range of issues but they've yeah, but there have been issues that also local councillors have been working on and MPs as well. So there's this layer of MLAs who actually have a lot of time for. Uh, once the assembly was up and running, we uh, found them really helpful, engaging, happy to get stuck into things. But it just feels like a huge waste of opportunity at the moment, really. Mm. So all those policy things like neighbourhood renewal um, or a brand new youth work strategy or an anti-poverty strategy, it's all part of this growing list of things that can't be signed off because there's not a minister to make them happen. Yeah. So we have ongoing conversations with civil servants that even though the civil ser- even though the civil servants are very well meaning, they're going right in circles because they don't want to make any decisions mm. in case they're taken to court over it. So, mm. you know, things are really stagnating unfortunately, mm. which is sad. Now where there is movement is in local councils. So for example the Belfast City Council is a very vibrant council. It's quite a diverse council now in terms of its elected representatives. Uh, there's a huge range of councillors now that are a lot broader than the traditional orange and green divides. So that's really interesting. But I suppose the other thing that is challenging us in terms of engaging with council is the sort of larger corporate agenda there and growing the city and making Belfast an international destination for tourists and for business. So it does then mean that the inner city areas where there are the most challenges are kind of being left out of the conversation. So 
there are challenges at central government level and at local council level, but yeah, there is a lot of stagnation. Mm-hmm. And I think you know you do see it a lot uh, that that frustration. I think it's always like quite a sort of a bourgeois attitude to talk complain about sort of politicians and you know we're better off without them and all the rest of it. But I think you're seeing it very much in practice what that actually means once that begins to to filter out into policy or, or strategy or, or whatever that might be then it, you know it isn't a healthy way to to run what we would like to think are democracies at the end of the day and the thing that hangs over it all is the issue of brexit as well there are huge complications huge complexities around what that means for the northern ireland border i mean it doesn't really affect our work in east belfast very much to be honest but the issue of how people view democracy is an issue for us so in the inner east belfast area we are so the, the, the centre where we work is a polling station, actually, as well. Always turnout is really low. For the Brexit referendum, actually, the turnout was a lot higher. Mm. And uh, in our area, folks uh, voted on balance. Now, in each, it's an interesting area because it's very affluent in some ways as well, but then it's also very challenged in a lot of ways. But I think um, it just about... I voted to leave. So certainly in the inner city part of East Belfast where we work, people people would have voted overwhelmingly to leave. Folks here not have voted before and are voting for the first time. So they're saying that they voted to leave and that was the result. But they're saying it not quite happening. And that affects how they view democracy as a result. Now, I'm speaking in generalities here yeah, as well, yeah, but yeah. I think just it adds a whole other level. In terms of how people view the democratic process, you know, mm-hmm. some of that resonates with me then in, in in Wales and certainly in South Wales, where you know in the sort of the coalfields area again there was a general vote to vote to leave, but it's wrapped up in that frustration around you know the economic paradigm. I think it's wrapped up in a frustration around you know declining social community infrastructure, but but you know the council tax isn't going down, but there's less opportunity for you know access in libraries and leisure centres and so on, and I think you know it, it was wrapped up a lot in that. Uh, the last podcast we did with Rob Watson from Descent and Media, he, uh, he has a general rule that the, the person who mentions the B word first has to buy the drinks afterwards. So uh, I'm gonna have to hold, hold, I'll have to hold you to that one, Johnny. Is there anything Fair else enough. you want? Yeah, yeah. Is there, yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to, to to raise? Anything that you'd like people, perhaps who aren't familiar with Northern Ireland and the community development scene there, to to know about or to to appreciate and understand? Well, I suppose something that I'm always interested in is the perception of community development work and how it's perceived in other parts of the UK interests me even just from the point of view of um, how you talk about it with people yeah I'd be interested in your experience of this but even in terms of the circles of friends family folks that you know how you talk about what you do you know when I say that I work in community development it's like okay so is that youth work no it's not is it is it social work no it's not it's actually this and you go in and you start to talk and the the eyes just glaze over you know so (laughs) I've just started I've just started calling it youth work with adults and okay, like see how it goes. Anyway, there is a perception of the profession here and I think it's related to the fact that so many community development practitioners, community relations practitioners in Northern Ireland have been working in peace building and in difficult conversations that arose from the conflict and who may have had a past in terms of from a loyalist paramilitary background or a Republican paramilitary background and that just clouds how the public views our work as being something that's linked to illegal organisations mm. and that can't really be trusted mm. and is and is, is therefore dodgy and in some way compromised. Mm. And the reality is very different, you know. 
which comes back to the point I, I'm still not quite sure I articulated well enough at the start around trust. Trust it seems to be much more fundamental than it is, uh, you know, a courtesy. Then when we're rocking up, as I said, in, in an estate somewhere in in South Wales or whatever, it's much more fundamental and wrapped up in in in, in history. I think I think perception. I mean, I'm glad that it's not just me that people glaze over when they're hearing uh, talk about this work. I think Communities First, for all its faults, and like I said, it wasn't a community development programme, but it did do and fund and resource community development activity. And not only that, it was the backdrop against which, and I know you've got it over there as well, you know, you had the, the national occupational standards, we had a strategic framework developed, and given some political patronage. Now, I think what we've done is we've taken the RI off the ball, and those things are largely obscured and known about and I think we we the people doing the work have to go again going back to basics we have to organize we have to collectivize and we have to kind of put a little bit of um, you know amplification to these things but I don't think we necessarily have that baggage I'm not sure that's a polite word to work through I think what's interesting in Wales you have a much more of a, a linguistic dimension to it than you would have in terms of a lot of the the rural communities in the north and the west though not exclusively would have been doing things around planning, what we would call community planning, you know, a couple you know, decades ago around preserving the Welsh language as a language of the community in those areas. And so we, we did learn a little bit from that. I think you've got things around the, the trade union movement, the chapel movement um, in, in South Wales in particular, but, but, but not exclusively, would have um, done a lot of community organising, provide a lot of access to learning, both formal and informal. Um, so there's a there's a, there's a uh, you know there's differences, but I think there's similarities. And when I think you actually begin to pick that apart and dissect it, the processes are very similar, I think. And I think that's I yeah. think that's the key. Uh, one of the challenges that we face, and I think Protestant unionist loyalist areas, when we talk about community development, is a lot of the language is perceived as being language that has been used by the Catholic nationalist Republican side. So when you talk about rights and empowerment, all those things that you're entitled to, that's been seen as something that the other lot are always banging on about, but that's right. not us, that's not our language. Yeah. So we're always very, very conscious whenever we're talking about community development in East to um, speak in the language of the community here and to be aware that it is a challenge to go on and start kind of banging on about Saul Lelinsky and community organising and all that. Um, might not work. You, know, you may still have the same approach, but we need to moderate our language Moderate's not the wrong word because it's not about moderating the approach, but it's, it's being sensitive around language. For us, that's been a bit of a barrier around the kind of challenge function of community development, you know. That's fascinating because one of the early podcasts we did was with is a, a Leeds based community development consultant practitioner in the north of England called Steve Skinner, and he was writing a book where he was arguing that in order to essentially make communities stronger, he also rejected the term resilient uh, from, from, from memory. I think I'm right in saying. And he was talking about the building blocks of making those communities stronger need to have equalities and human rights placed at the heart and that that's non-negotiable. But it's interesting that you say yeah. that, you know, that language might, might be fine in Leeds for argument's sake or, you know, Cardiff where I live, but actually where you're working, again, has its own, um, well, arguably fairly unique context and, and, and background you're sort of working in a unionist area where you feel a real strong connection to being british and all that, that entails whether it's you know kind of british institutions british government all those functions all those 
all those important building blocks of your ethnic identity and you're being introduced to, to, to terms that seem to challenge that state. Even though you, you do have a, a, a strong, clear problem around housing or around mental health or around something in your neighbourhood youth work that involves challenging the state, if you if it's so ingrained within you that your kind of your kind of Britishness and that institution is always under attack, how much do you want to be seen to be attacking that? Yeah. Even though you're not actually, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of how they do things. That's where I think the sort of challenge function of community development has been more effective in Catholic nationalist Republican areas because there is a different political ideology there, which yeah. I think makes it easier to actually challenge the state. You know, if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. And as I said, I think, I think a lot of people who, who do this work, but but clearly not in Northern Ireland, will find that absolutely fascinating. I, I'd love to carry on. I'd love to come over. I, I think um, I think when we first we first chatted, which was, I think it was back before Christmas last year, I, th- I think we agreed that I have been in that neck of the woods, um, but it'll be it was to do with with football. Um, we played a, a game in. I mean, literally underneath the. Uh, the, 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 the sort of the cranes and the, the apparatus on, on, on the on the docks at Harland and Wolf. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. The Oval. Well, we watched a game at the Oval, and I think we played. It was about five minutes away, but I, the changing rooms were literally under the. Uh, I think a couple of my efforts on goal almost cleared the cranes actually, but uh, <laughs> we we had a very warm welcome <laughs> and the Ulster. Right yeah, the Ulster fry that we had afterwards still remains probably the greatest cooked breakfast I've ever had and was enormous. But um, but you did you did see a lot of Union Jacks. You saw you know red, white, and blue on curbs and things like that. And I wasn't that was my first and and hitherto only experience of that and I guess a lot of people who will go to Belfast are doing what you've said and I guess that reflects why community planning it sounds a very crass application of the of the term and the process is around city centre destination and tourism offer and things like that I did a bit of that but I was also quite fortunate to see you know a little bit of the you know off the beaten track so to speak in a tourist sense you know where, where we were playing and um it was eye-opening because if your if your experience of this or your reference points is only the media and TV, then I guess you're only seeing a certain a certain angle of it, and I think that's a shame. And I think that's I think there is a parallel there where in the way that you know poverty, disadvantage, deprivation is portrayed in the media, areas if you don't go to areas that are disadvantaged, well you're only going to get an insight into issues around poverty through what the media is deigning to tell you and how they portray that. And I think that's something that, that Rob. In the previous podcast that we did, Rob Watson he talks very passionately about that actually we need to control more of the media output. And that's, that goes now beyond perhaps what it did in the old days around just having a good contact with the local newspaper. Because actually, you know what, in some areas there is no local newspaper anymore or it's barely read or it's, it's filled with ads. So, you know, trying to get your story in is, is that much harder. And I think uh, I think there's a parallel there in what we perceive and what we understand is very much shaped by by the media until or unless we are challenged by seeing it, by visiting these areas. And uh, like I said, I was I, I've done it, but only the once. And uh, it'd be lovely if I could uh, if I could do it again, maybe sometime. But um, all, all the best yeah. with, with with what you're doing. I hope that political situation clears up, but I'm not aware that it's going to anytime soon. Um, and that, I think that's that's a shame. We are quite. Uh far back I think in terms of even just how we talk about community development approaches so even for us here to have a, a platform and a, and a framework and a space to talk about even just something as simple as a deficit approach and the asset approach yeah. we're just we're still firm I think in the deficit camp in terms of how we do community development here we haven't 
even kind of shifted our language towards the asset based. So there's still a lot of work for us to do in that. A lot of certainly a lot of distance for us to travel, even have those conversations mm-hmm. around around community development and civil society, and not just around emphasising the role of agencies and implementing programmes, but actually seeing kind of people as an asset, as a resource. So we're well behind in those conversations, and we need to do more of them. Well, like I said, all the best for the future. I'm very grateful. Get this out as soon as we can. If there's anything else you wanted to add that can be communicated in a blog format, there's an open invitation to put something on the blog. Great. Uh, and, and maybe catch up another time and see see what's happening over there. But um, until then, I'm, I'm really grateful, Johnny. Thank you very much. Okay, no worries. Thanks.